0: a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. When Je- then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry a mat. So, we're just going to sing a song now, and then we'll come back to it. Verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son came sorry, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even great Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimonies about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention in that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me, But if somebody else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say?
1: of an update on the, the campus work down in Hobart, because I know many of you are interested in that and pray for it. Um, and, uh, and then I'll also just make a comment briefly about a, a book that I have available in the foyer too. And then we'll dive in to John 5. All right, firstly, just about the um, uh, the campus ministry in Hobart. Uh, just a simple update. The, um, uh, the, the combination of COVID combined with a move to hybrid online learning um, combined with, in Hobart, quite a major and fairly unpopular move to the CBD campuses, which will be something that will be taking place through to 2030, something like that, has caught, all those things together have caused a lot of disruption, especially for local student ministry, less so for international student ministry. So it's just a really different thing for us down in Hobart with the University Fellowship of Christians than it was before COVID. And so, you know, that would be something, I just love your prayers for us to have wisdom as we think about that and encouragement in the midst of that that difficulty. Um. It's something that I'm, I'm concerned about as someone who's interested more generally in, in Christian ministry across our state, uh, just because the university does have an in- influence you know, through that university ministry and through the influence of leadership and training and evangelistic training, that ends up being something that affects all of us down the track in our churches and church leadership and elders and deacons and all these kinds of things. And so it's a larger... Um, thing that we'll notice has an impact, um, hopefully, hopefully not for the negative but it is very concerning. Uh, in the middle of all of that, a thing that we're increasingly realising will be very important is not to just rely on students all being on a campus all the time and as a result then humming and buzzing around and so just building ministry around the geography of the campus. That's just That was already less the case in the 2010s, it's a lot less the case. In the 2020s. Um, and so increasingly, it seems to me that for Hobart, and I guess by extension, you know, the Launceston and Northwest students who come to Hobart too and come back to Launceston and the Northwest, um, it will be important for both uni students and others that we, um, we find ways to encourage connection and ministry and evangelism among young adults, maybe not only on the university campus. So that's what we're thinking through is, in addition to our uni work, also building opportunities for social connection, evangelistic events and, uh, and training and stuff, both for uni students and for those entirely studying online, studying on a mainland campus, doing apprenticeships, working, taking gap years. I think we need to look at that whole group, and that will be a way that will also benefit the university at the same time. So that's something we're, we're wrestling with and would love your prayers for. Something that we hope will benefit the whole state is our our restructured launch conference, was our pre-season conference. That will be happening again next year and that'll be a statewide event. So that will be anyone here as well who are young adults, whether you're at uni or not, Hobart or Launceston, apprenticeships working, if you can make it to that launch conference in February next year, you are very welcome to join us. And we hope that will be a really important thing for for the wider state in, in these strange times. Um, and then just briefly to mention I I had a book published at the start of this year which is about how church it's called the Vine Movement it has a pretty gold cover Um, it's about how churches work together with all the other kinds of Christian ministry and activity beyond the church so most of you here if you've been involved in church for a long time you're probably involved in and benefit from and maybe give to or a leader in ministries outside of church Christian schools, chaplaincy, overseas mission, publishing, websites, uh, music. We've been singing songs produced not by a church or a denomination, but by some Christian musicians like Rob Smith and Nikki Chiswell. Um, How do you relate those things together? What's the healthy relationship between church and denomination and all the other awesome Christian things out there? Christian art, Christian political engagement, Christian education, theological education. That's what this book tackles. And so even if you don't read the whole thing, just find the chapters that are relevant to the thing you're interested in and you can read those chapters and then pass it on to someone else. Maybe you can rip it up into bits and share, share the bit. I don't know. Anyway, so there's some copies out in the foyer. You can just leave your name and email and I'll send you how to direct deposit instructions. Uh, cheaper than you'll get at <laughs> Um You could also find it in ebook and audio book on Amazon if that's more your thing. Okay, those things done, I'll pray for us as we now think about John chapter 5 together. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you so much that you are not only our creator and the just judge, the sustainer of the world uh, and the ruler, but you are the saviour. And you, Father, sent your Son in the Lord Jesus Christ to not only teach and work wonders, but to die and rise as the Son of Man, the saviour of the world. We praise you for these things and pray now as we hear Jesus and think what it means to speak the words of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus, that you encourage us and stir us, refresh us and enthuse us to be each in our own way witnesses uh, to the Lord Jesus. And we pray for guests here this morning who may not be Christians, who don't know what they think, that they will be blessed as they hear from Jesus this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John today and then when I come back in September, a very elongated sermon series with that gap in between, Um, and we'll be looking at three episodes, each a miracle followed by some teaching to some extent. John chapter 5 today, this miracle at the Pool of Bethesda followed by this teaching. Then we'll look at John chapter 9 in the the first of the deliberately evangelistic sermons um, and the healing of a man born blind and the teachings and the drama that follow that. And then we'll look at John 11, where um, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the, from the dead. And, and the, the teaching there is not so much um, like an extended little sermon teaching thing, like with these other ones, but there, there's, a, um, uh, there's the dialogues he has with Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, and we get to listen in on those. Um, The hope is that the the invitation that we give to um, friends, family, workmates, classmates, uh, strangers perhaps, if we do some advertising um, in that way as well, Um, the hope is that as we invite people to come in, they get to have an encounter with Jesus themselves as they listen in on these encounters with Jesus from the first century. They get to see what Jesus is like as he walks and talks and heals and acts and deals with controversy of various kinds. You get to know Jesus. We're blessed with these stories in the Gospels. We don't simply have sermons of Jesus and sayings of Jesus. We don't simply have Jesus talking to kings and wise people. In the Gospels, we have Jesus walking and talking with everyday people. This, this guy who we see in this chapter, is quite grumpy, it seems, and not especially thankful. The man born blind is, is much more thankful and becomes a quite comically bold as he responds to the criticisms of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in John 9, the reality of the anguish of Mary and Martha as they say to Jesus, if you were here, our brother wouldn't have died. We're blessed to see Jesus in in everyday conversation and uh, and we get to know Jesus. So we get to invite people to meet Jesus in that way. Um, These sermons in September won't be... The um, apologetics sermon, where it's, how can you trust the Bible? Is it historical? Can reasonable people, scientific people, believe in miracles? Um, why does a good God allow suffering and death in the world? We, we won't be going in deep on those questions. There's, that, that, sometimes that's good to do. But the focus here will instead be going, um, let's just say there are answers to those questions. And, and there are But let's just assume for a moment there might be answers to those questions. What would it be like if it were true? What would it be like if Jesus was like the Gospels say he was and did what the Gospels say he did and said what the Gospels said he said? What would that then mean for life, the universe and everything? What would it mean for you and for me? Is that something that means you should consider finding out more about Jesus, reading the whole of the Gospel of John? going back and reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reading more of the scriptures to see more of these things. That's the kind of thing we'll be doing. A lot of people, they they, they know a lot about the Bible growing up. And in some ways, they just need a a challenge as an adult to look afresh and do business with God. A lot of other people know so little (laughs) that the chances that they'll come to faith in an instant That's not where they're at. It's a little bit like overseas mission. You might visit a culture with very little familiarity with Christianity. It's a process a missionary has to go through as they share with people from a different religious and philosophical background. And so this is the beginning of that for some people, saying, come and meet Jesus. See what he has to say. See what he did. See what he was like. Look with us together and think about what it could mean. That's what we'll be doing in September. Today... I want to be thinking about what do we expect will happen when guests maybe say yes and come and join us in September? You know, what do we expect? What are we hoping for? Why are we confident that this is a good idea to invite people to come and read the Bible with us? What does it mean to hear Jesus? What does it mean when you do read the Bible, whether in a Christianity Explained course or in a sermon on a Sunday? What goes on? That's what we'll be thinking about today. We'll be meeting Jesus in this story, but as we meet Jesus in this story, we'll be hearing him tell us what it means to hear the voice of Jesus, the Son. All right, let's go back over the story again, just very briefly. It's been, it tells itself, doesn't it, to a certain extent, so I'll just, I'll just make a couple of brief notes. Um, that Jesus is back at Jerusalem for one of the feast visits here, uh, verse 1. Did you know um, that... The reason we know Jesus' ministry lasted three years is because of John's Gospel. It's because of the number of times John mentions feasts that you realise, hang on, this couldn't have happened in 18 months. There you go. So this is one of these feast visits that John especially draws our attention to. Um, And here Jesus is finding a sad, grumpy man. (laughs) Understandably grumpy. His life is very hard. And he's missing out on what he hopes might be a cure remedy. Something about this pool is expected to provide some kind of cure for people uh, hoping for some relief. He's, he's been disabled um, for 38 years, paralysed. And he's here right within reach of a... a what he hopes might be a remedy, this pool of Bethesda, but no one's helping him get in in time uh, for when the waters are stirred, that he's expected to be some kind of relief for his, um, his suffering. But he's not happy. When Jesus comes and sees him, he complains. No, no, no one's helping me, yeah, is, is, is how he says. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Sir, verse 7, the invalid replies, I've no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down in ahead of me people, right? (laughs) He's not happy. And this is, we get in this little portrait of this man, we we get quite a a character study as these next few verses unfold. Jesus, in an astonishing miracle, says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Verse 9, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked like the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, or Lazarus who had been dead three days so that the King James Version can declare that he stinketh. Um, this is a miracle of a level very different to a relief to some chronic pain experience or, um, uh, or, or a mood disorder. This is a scale of a total reconstruction of a body that who, whose muscles and connection... had. had had been so beyond use for so long. A man born blind in chapter 9, the brain had never known what it would be to receive uh, visual input and process it. A person dead, so dead, they're dead as dead. They're deader than dead coming back to life. This this is not a a remarkable experience of a relief of symptoms. This is an immediate and astonishing experience entire reconstruction of things which which were not functioning at all this is life from the dead sort of stuff even for this man as far as his um body is concerned astonishing and just with a word just with a word jesus didn't say oh do you want to get well well i've got a meeting tonight here's a flyer come along and then after a song and a sermon and a song and a sermon and a song and a sermon then we'll get you up the front and then maybe after we pray and we pray and we touch and we pray and some more people touching you pray then maybe something will happen It's just a word. It is astonishing, the power of Jesus in this story, with a word. He says, get up, off you go. Up he gets, off he goes. It's like Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? God said, let there be light, there was light. Let there be stars, there were stars. What a thought. Get up and go. Jesus heals him, he walks away, carrying his mat, and this, depressingly, is a prompt for controversy. What do the Pharisees see? I mean, we'll see the same thing in John chapter 9. What do the Pharisees see when a person who has been paralysed for 38 years is walking, carrying his mat? What do they see? Do they see a man whose life had been drastically limited, whose future and prospects and security and vulnerability was so extreme, now walking? No, they see a mat in his hand. That's what they see. That's in that whole scenario. What do they zoom in on? The mat. The day on which this took place, verse 9, was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. My goodness. How does the man reply? And here we see more of the character study. The man does a bit of a, an Adam move from the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden story in Genesis chapter 3. He, he passes the buck. He points the finger. He blames Jesus. He says, oh, no, it was the man who made me well who said, pick up your mat and walk. It's not my fault. Blame him. <laughs> it's not praise God. I encountered this one who made me well. Uh-uh. It was more like, oh, if you've got a problem, take it up with him. Gosh, he's still kind of ungrateful, isn't he? And so they asked him, Who is this fellow? Verse 12, who told you to pick up the mat and walk. And the man who was healed had no idea who it was. He didn't know how to blunt. Jesus had, had had slipped away, we're told. Jesus seeks out the man again and has a has a hard word. Check out verse 14. Jesus has a read on this guy. He is great with people in that sense. He speaks words of gentleness to some. Uh, he sometimes refuses to answer insincere questions. And others, he'll, he'll really put a finger on, on, on their issue. And here, he, he challenges the person. Verse 14, Jesus found this man at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. God has touched your life, in other words. Respond rightly to the God who has touched your life. Don't say, huh, thanks God, I can walk now, now I can get my grumbles far and wide. <laughs> I can jog my grumbles to the nearby villages. I can, whatever it is that I'll now use my, my new power and freedom for, Jesus says, use it for good. Use it for God. What does the man do? Well, with these newfound mobile limbs, he goes away, verse 15, and tells the Jews, hey, I know who did it now. <laughs> not, not, again, not to praise, but to blame. I'll leave it with you guys. His name's Jesus of Nazareth. We're through, right? We're good? It's, it's a grim story. So that's, that's the event. That's the disappointing result that becomes then a prompt uh, for, for Jesus to speak in extraordinary ways about himself. You see, because in verse 16, um, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, healing people who were paralysed for 38 years, tut, 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 the Jews persecuted him. You shouldn't have done this. And Jesus' response is provocative, verse 17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Sometimes in controversies, in in the stories of Jesus, sometimes he'll correct those who are complaining by saying, your your complaint is wrong. You're worried about rules about cleaning cups and dishes. The Bible doesn't even speak about those rules. You're wrong. Sometimes, though, he will deal with a controversy kind of by making it worse, by saying, actually, you know what, yes, yes. I am breaking your rule, even God's law in a sense. But that's because there is an exception and I am the exception. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not just... He could have said, you know what? What's better to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I've given new life to this person. Surely that is fitting for God's day, his holy day. He doesn't do that here. He says, verse 17, God can work on the Sabbath... Because God's always at work, uh, holding the universe together. So, same with me. Some Jews use the argument that God can continue to hold the universe together because the whole universe is His house, and so He's not really leaving His house. He's just, you know, kind of that's 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 His day off is holding the whole universe together. Either way, Jesus is saying, "I'm like God." So they rightly take offence at this astonishing claim, verse 18. The Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was claiming a particular kind of father-son relationship with God. A particular kind such that as the father works so the son can work even on the Sabbath. This divine prerogative. And it's in then expanding upon his unique relationship to God the Father, that we get the rest of this amazing chapter. We move from the story to the speech, and it's amazing as it describes what it means for Jesus to be God the Son, the Son of Man. Amazing. And a reason why, therefore, we should be expectant and hopeful and confident when we invite someone to come and meet Jesus in his word. So let's move then from the story to the speech, to Jesus speaking about his equality to the Father. His equality, but also his sonship relationship to the Father. Jesus doesn't back away from the claim. He doesn't say, oops, you misunderstood me. No, no, no. He strengthens the claim, this relationship of equality and sonship. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself, He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, I'm not a separate God somehow, equal to God and next to him, like perhaps Greek or Roman gods where there's lots of gods. It's not that. No, no, I'm father to the son. I do nothing separate from the father. I do everything that I see the father doing. I'm not... Another God, but nor am I less than God. I do all the Father does. There is a relationship of mutuality. Let's read a whole section, 19 to 23. Jesus gave him this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For example, verse 20. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these, greater than the healing of the, 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 the paralyzed man. 4, verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whomever he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He does not seek... Honor this, uh, he who does not seek to honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Giving life, showing all, doing everything, judgment, honor, all these things. This Jesus of Nazareth is also God the Son, become a human being to bring salvation. God doesn't just come to earth to do miracles give law, impart wisdom, it comes to give life, eternal life. And that's the significance then of, for the, uh, the future of the world. Just as God created the world through God the Son, as he spoke that word, let there be light, now God the Father will save and judge the world through God the Son, who has become the Son of Man, the ruler of the ruler of the world. The future is defined by God become a human, by Jesus Christ, the God-man, the son of man. Humanity's fate is defined by our response to Jesus, not just being spiritual, not just believing in a God, our response to God as he has come to us in Jesus. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word... And believes Him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Hear Jesus' word, receive Jesus' word as the word of God, it, heaven begins. Eternal life has begun. You've made the transition from death to life, from this world to the world to come. It's begun. Glorious thought. Now you have life. And Jesus can give it to you because he is God. Become the Son of Man, the Christ. Verse 26. Uh, we'll actually, we'll go for... Yeah, verse 26. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned is crossed over from death to life. Verse 25. I tell you the truth. The time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. God has in is in Christ fully all of God's life to save and to judge, to raise and to condemn. In him, the end of the world is found. In him, the hope of the world is found. We'll find out more about that, and we'll invite our friends and family and workmates and fellow Launcestonians to find out more about that in John chapter 9, and especially John chapter 11. The consequences are enormous for how you respond to Jesus whether for good or for bad, the stakes are as high as they can get. Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. It's shocking scary but this is about final justice this is about the ultimate meaning of life yeah, this is the big picture why should I consider Christianity well it has many interesting things to say yes it's interesting and wise and good yes and also because there's the possibility of a judgement day Because there's the possibility that all of us will come from our graves and stand before the God who made us, give an account for our lives, and the hope is found in doing good, which in John's gospel is connected up with knowing God and his son, coming to Jesus, believing in him, and living a life of obedience to him. It's coming to faith in Christ and living that out. That's... That's what brings eternal life. To not listen to the son, to not listen to the father, to not live in his way, to not trust him for salvation, that is to continue to do wrong and to rise to be condemned. It's massive what we see here. Absolutely massive. That when we meet Jesus, when this man who was paralysed for 38 years met Jesus, when the Pharisees who took exception to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath and instructing a man to carry his mat met Jesus, when we listen in on this story, when friends and family and, and, and workmates and classmates come to hear the stories of Jesus, we are meeting God, come to earth, for our salvation. Or, if we won't listen, Hardening us in our, in our condemnation. So what does this mean then for mission? Let's have some concluding thoughts as I wrap up. Here's some concluding applications as we think about evangelism. First of all, as I've, as I've been saying over and again, and as the series will be all about, uh, central to evangelism is preaching Jesus. Jesus and a powerful way to preach Jesus is through the gospels where you see Jesus you hear Jesus you watch him through the story in relationship with others yeah here's how we get to pre- tell people about Jesus by inviting them to come and watch and listen with us secondly this passage tells us so clearly doesn't it about the power of Jesus word get up take your mat and in an instant, a man born, uh, paralyzed for 38 years gets up, takes his mat. That's the power of Jesus. It's the, Je- the power of God, the creator. It's everything that God says, Jesus relays. It's a, a voice that can summon dead people out of the graves. Can bring light, light out of darkness can drag guilty, sinful, hum- mortal humans out of death to life and grant eternal life to them. It is a word from one, spoken from one, who has life in himself. That's the power of Jesus. And so that's the confidence I have as a preacher. And it's the confidence I have when I invite people to read the Bible or to listen to a preacher. It's the confidence you can have when you invite somebody to read the Bible, come and listen to a preacher. You're inviting them to hear the powerful word of the Creator life to the dead, who makes the paralysed walk, who makes the, those born blind see who makes the sinner saved so that's, that's why we should have anticipation prayerful, hopeful confident anticipation thirdly Jesus' message is so important that should motivate us shouldn't it? Should move me to pray. If this is a message that saves people for eternity, makes people rich for eternity, then that should move me to pray for the spread of the gospel in the nations of the world and in the suburbs of the north. <laughs> I should be praying. Amongst the many things I pray for, may the word of God spread and be fruitful. Yeah, It should motivate me to I guess Cam and I were talking in the interview about how how do you think about inviting somebody to Christianity Explored, to coming along to the Encounters with Jesus series or whatever. Um, It's a lot easier if they already know you're a Christian. (laughs) And I bet you in this room there are some of us who even some people pretty close to us don't know that you're a Christian. Or they kind of know you're a Christian, but assume it's kind of like we're all Christians, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, kind of a census Christian. They don't know that you're a devout Christian. But given the importance of Jesus' word and the importance of Jesus for us, it sure that motivates me to think through how I can share, how I can let slip to my friends and my classmates, my workmates, my the people, my neighbours, that I'm a devout Christian. Because I tell you what, it's a lot easier to invite someone to church if they already know you go to church. <laughs> it's a lot easier to invite conversations about Christianity if they know you're a Christian. So for some of us, that's the motivation. Who's someone in my life that I could actually look and pray for an opportunity to, uh, to use the kind of um, modern terminology to come out of the closet as a Christian? Yeah. There's a thought. There's motivation, in other words. The importance of Jesus' message motivates me to pray, motivates me to invite, motivates me to just be public as a Christian. A fourth thought of application is about the difference between apologetics and proclamation. Apologetics is a technical word that means giving a defense, a reasoned defense for the gospel. It doesn't come from... Apology as in, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. But uh, from, from the, uh, the Greek word, which could also mean a defence, like in a, you could def- be a, have a defence in a law court against an accusation. So how you defend Christianity against accusations of, of one kind or another. As I've said, the the sessions we'll be doing in September won't be apologetics primarily. And I'll say that in them. I'll say, hey, look, you might have questions about miracles. We won't discuss that in detail, but there are answers to those questions. You might have questions about the historical truthfulness of the Bible. We won't discuss that in detail today, but there are answers to those questions. So I'll, I'll kind of mention the fact that we won't go in that direction, but we're open to those conversations. Those are important. Because the gospel is a claim to truth and an appeal to people's minds as well as their hearts. So we see here at the end of this passage, Jesus speaking about evidences. Do you notice that in that final bit of the reading? Jesus speaks about testimonies. If he spoke merely as a human his testimony would be inadequate there is John the prophet who is a recognized authority his testimony verse 33 there is the miracles Jesus has performed are a kind of evidence or testimony in verse 36 and then there is the prophecy fulfillment of the scriptures verse 39 and 40 so the the gospel preachers do it's not faith without reason it's it's Uh, reasoning and faith working together yeah and so there is an answering of objections and an appealing to evidence throughout the scriptures and the apostles evangelism so that's important stuff yeah and at the same time there is a power all its own in proclamation There's a place for, as Jesus says here, as we find in the Apostles, where they reason, but then they also declare. They say, let me tell to you what God says. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Uh, Christian evangelism isn't all debates and lectures, but it is also, thus saith the Lord. Let me tell you what God has to say to you. And you see something of that, even in the way Jesus talks about evidence at the end. He, He says... Look, if it was just me talking on my own, so what? Verse 31, 32. Uh, Later on, he says, look, I, I don't care about what people think. Verses 41 and following. If it's just people's opinions, so what? Even John, who testifies to the truth, verse 34. I'm not even entirely basing my confidence on John's testimony, verse 34. John the Baptist, that is. No, the great testimony is God's self-testimony, verse 36 and following. I have a testimony weighter than that of John. The very work the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies the Father has sent me. And the Father has sent me himself has testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. That is... There's a sense in which, here's an evidence, John's testimony. Here's an evidence, Jesus' miracles. Here's an evidence, the historicity of the Bible and the resurrection. Here's an evidence, the coherence of the biblical worldview. And God's word itself uh, testifies to itself It's both, both are true, but there is a sense in which as we proclaim the word of God, God's authority comes with it that can have an impact direct on the heart and the intuition of the human hearer that persuades them, that convicts them, that stirs them. I don't quite know why yet. So that they can say like the blind man says in John chapter 9, look, I don't know about this and I don't know about that, but there's one thing I know. I was blind and now I can see. And there is a sense in which uh, that the, the, we can be shaken by the word of God. I don't know all the answers yet. I'm keen to have my doubts addressed. But something happened, man. When I met Jesus in the Bible, when I heard him preached and proclaimed, something was stirred within me. God himself was testifying to his word. So there's an important place for preaching, I'm saying, in that sense. And for Bible reading, I'm saying, in that sense. Because we meet God direct there with a self-authenticating authority there. So final application. Let's find out what happens, shall we? Let's, each of us, as we're able to, pray for opportunities, look for opportunities. Maybe a conversation comes your way that you didn't expect, and you get to say to somebody, hey, if you want to find out more, my church is doing this thing. Uh, why don't you come along? Or we run this course, why don't you sign up for that? Let's find out, shall we? Let's pray afresh, let's commit afresh to be bold and resourceful in looking for opportunities to speak this word of the Son and see what life-giving power might be unleashed. I'll pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your love shown us in Christ and we rest in the power of his saving word, And we ask that that word will do its work in us and through us and for this city. Please use your word to save people to new life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.